0: No Welcome to No Challenges Remaining. I'm Ben Rothenberg. Delighted to be joined by a friend on the opposite side of the world from me in this episode, Brad Hutchins, who is the author of the book Game Set Cash. Uh, previously worked in tennis and no longer does. He's currently a teacher uh, who just came back from surfing on the Gold Coast in Queensland. Which sounds like a delightfully outdoor wonderful escape considering all of us are indoors, nowhere near surf mostly. But Brad, hope you're yeah, doing well and enjoying this uh, weird time in the world as best you can be right now.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I feel pretty fortunate to be able to still get outside when a lot of people are locked in. So we'll see how long that lasts for. I'm just trying to make the most of it while I've got the
0: opportunity. So we're we're doing, as during this tennis tour hiatus, we're doing a bunch of stuff on different tennis books. And your book was one of the ones I most enjoyed that I read in the last few years, Game Set Cash. And it all centers around the job you used to have in tennis, or it's not in tennis, like around tennis, at least. I guess, can you just sort of tell a story, and we'll get into the details of this more as we go along, but of how you first sort of found an employment opportunity uh, with tennis and, and what that what that presented itself as, how you first heard about it. Yeah, thanks, man.
1: Um, so I first heard about it when I was, I was living in a share house in London. Um, this was over 10 years ago now. And one of the guys I lived with, he would always disappear. And I didn't know where he was going. He was always off to China or Russia or all of these far-flung destinations. And I knew that he had a job working at the tennis, but I didn't really know what it was. And it, it took a while of probing to when he was back from his trips to, to figure out what he did. And I realized after a while that he was a courtsider. And um, he, was, he was flying around the world to sit on these matches and report the scores back to a group that he was working with, a syndicate who would gamble on the tennis. Um, and they made enough of a profit out of it to be able to afford to send him around the world. So he could sit courtside and, you know, have tickets to the tennis, to all of the matches and, and do that. So I kind of pestered him to, to get me on board after a while. Cause I like the idea of getting paid to travel and, um, yeah, it took, it took a couple of years for that to actually eventuate. Um, a few of my other friends who were in the share house kind of got involved as well. And I went off, I lived in Canada for a while and did some more traveling. And then um, funnily enough, it was, it was lucky timing. Like just as I returned home from a few years of travel, I got an email saying, okay, you're up. We've, um, we've got a position and, and you might be on for it. So send through your resume, um, which is, is funny because I actually did have to do that for a, a pretty informal job. But um, yeah, they, they got me on board, and then I worked as a courtsider for about two years, um, full time on the, the tour, just going around the world um, to different matches, and yeah, had the time of my life.
0: It was Let, fantastic. Let's, let's pause there. When you were sort of pestering your this, this housemate of yours for information on his job, what did he do? What because I'm guessing you had not heard of courtsiding before you talked to him. So what nah. was it? How did he explain this uh, this occupation of his? And did it make sense to you right away? It, it didn't make sense to me straight away at all because I wasn't much of a gambler.
1: I love tennis, but I didn't really know this industry existed, which is kind of what prompted me to write the book. At the end of it all, because not many people do. Yeah. Um, so he would bring home these odd-looking phones that, that that could be programmed differently. And this is back when you know I think the first couple of iPhones had just come out, but not many people used them. So he was using these old kind of Nokia's and programming them up, and would have a program on there where you could transmit the score as if you had a scoreboard on your phone. So he would log the scores from the stands, sitting there watching the match. Um, That would go back. It would be linked up with the database in the UK, go straight back there, and that would would get fed into the system and then it would be bet upon um, to build a position. And generally speaking, people who are doing that are using Betfair as their website of choice to bet because they can – Back and lay players and try and build a position. And if they do bet at the correct time, they can, they can put themselves in a win-win situation, which is ideal, or they can you know, go big on one side if they think that player is going to come through. So um, I gradually kind of started to learn about the strategy involved in it, the technology involved, and um, the very kind of funny little game of cat and mouse that was involved as well, yeah. trying to avoid security and, and uh, get away with doing it.
0: So, so just to stop again there, so he's basically sitting, a courtsider sits in a tennis stadium or at a tennis court somewhere yeah. at a pro tennis match, and usually on the main tour at a Grand Slam or sometimes at a Challenger, I guess, and yep. uh, will hit a button on their phone after every point to transmit yeah. the score somewhere else to usually to someone working at a computer at some sort of office central location, exactly. and, th- and that person then updates an algorithm which usually which um which then informs how bets are placed in the betting market betfair which is not like a traditional bookie but it's more i don't need to get betfair is confusing people who don't understand gambling too much i don't want to get too deep into betfair but betfair yes it's sort of a gambling market where people buy shares and bet against each other and yeah
1: yeah it's not your traditional kind of the house always wins situation it's it's people betting against each other um yeah, you know, so if they, they want to take odds at a certain point in the match, and and someone else has put those odds up, then they can, um, which allows for a lot more opportunity. And there's a market there with a lot of liquidity, a lot of money moving, and it's used by people all around the world. So it's become the main kind of area for people to who are court citing to to use. Um, and yeah, we we kind of did that, and we had an algorithm, like you mentioned. Um, and that would that would automatically make decisions about how the bets were placed. So that's um, yeah, pretty advanced kind of maths involved in that side of things. I didn't get into that too much with developing it, right. but um, I would basically feed the scores into the phone, and it would feed them to the algorithm, and then the rest would get done at the back end, so to speak, um, where everything was processed.
0: Yes, I, I, when I wrote I wrote a big article about siding and featured you in it a couple years yeah. ago for Racket. And I think I referred to it as like a really sort of adventurous data entry job, basically. Like you're just sort of sitting there at a tennis court somewhere in the world. And I guess your first tournament was in Brisbane. Is that right? So your home tournament was your first tournament? Yeah, it's
1: my hometown. I was born in Brisbane, so that was quite fitting.
0: Yeah, so, so you're just sitting there just to sort of talk through like your day as a courtsider. So you're just, you get told what matches to go to and you sit there and you just push a button every time a point finishes. Is it that simple?
1: We'd see the schedule of play, we'd pick which matches we are going to go to, usually there would be a few of us at each tournament, and we'd kind of spread the matches between us, and then you'd, you'd head to court, get ready, sit down. If you want a good seat, you're going to go to the baseline behind the players, so mm-hmm. you can see, you've got the best view of where the ball's going. Um, you kind of have to plan ahead for your day, because half the time you're sitting in the sun, so you, you've got to... You know, wear your sunscreen. Got to have sunscreen in your bag. Got to have some food and water with you. Got to be prepared to just sit on court for how long that match goes for. And you know, if you're at a Grand Slam, that could be six hours. So, Mm. um, yeah, you kind of just get a good seat, strap in, and uh, you know, you've got to be uh, kind to people around you and chat to them if they're friendly. But at the same time, focus on what's going on in front of you and try and stay focused for the duration of that whole match, even when there's breaks because if if a player gets injured or goes off to see the trainer you have to be on top of that because that's pivotal right to the match uh swings in the the betting so
0: is it fun is it easy is it boring i mean what is it like having to sort of push a button after every point and there you yeah know, even it's a, it's even a in experience. a not long match it's it's, it's you know, it can be hundreds of times i mean like a three set match is probably i don't know roughly yeah. roughly 200 points can be
1: yeah so if you've got a you know it can be mundane, you know, you can have juice that goes back and forth forever. There'd be certain players that would really um, bore you and there's other players that are, you know, scintillating to watch and that would really get you sucked into it. But at the same time, you have to detach from just being a spectator um, and actually do your job as well. So it's it's got a mixture of everything, you know, it can be super exciting. If you're doing a, you know, best of three sets tiebreaker, you're on the edge of your seat every point and you have to be on top of that because it's... It's really big money that's swinging in big ways each time. So you really have to be into it. And then you can also have those moments in the day where you're just bored out of your brain and you've watched a million points of tennis in the last few days and you're sick of it. But you're also in a different country usually. You've got a group of friends around that you can look forward to going traveling and kind of sightseeing with later that day. And yeah, there's a lot going on. So all in all, it was a, a really exciting kind of lifestyle. But um, you know, like you said, at the end of the day, it's it's a data entry um, job, and that's you're essentially just sitting there clicking buttons. And we used to call ourselves the monkeys on the buttons. Sometimes yeah. it's a bit of a joke. Like, you know, a monkey could do our job, but at the same time, there's there's a bit more involved to it. You have to really be on top of it because um, it's there's some subtle things that you've got to pick up on. If there's a uh, say a trainer at the side of the court standing there waiting, if you haven't picked up on that, and someone else has, they could be Really taking advantage of that and making some good money when you could be losing out. So yeah, there's there's a lot involved. Um, it's interesting, that's for sure. It's probably the best word, to, yeah. single word to sum up the
0: job. Did you have a sense when you were doing it how much money was being, you know, how much money was riding on you doing this accurately? Like what kind of stakes your your betting outfit was uh, was putting on these matches, and like kind of your responsibility Ooh. for that in in monetary. Yeah, in I mean, there sense? was definitely
1: pressure. There was pressure. We would get paid bonuses. Um, on our performance, and you know, we'd, we'd hear about some big wins and some big losses, and, and you would definitely you know know about it if you didn't kind of do the right thing at the right time. Um, I had a few of those that are kind of explained in the book. Um, one was you know eating a sandwich, and I looked up to see
0: the pork sandwich in Miami. Yeah, if to tell that story, that's a good one. Well, yeah, I was um, I was
1: on court, like I said earlier, you know, getting pretty bored um, at Miami Center Court. Andy Roddick's playing. And one of my mates turned up and he bought me a sandwich and I just thought it was the best thing on earth. It was like a pulled pork sandwich and I was loving it and just kind of ripping into that for lunch. And then I I looked down at my phone and I had a message and it just said shit. And I was like, oh no, <laughs> what's happened? And I looked up and Andy Rodgers getting treatment and I was like, I've just dropped the ball here massively. And yeah, that cost that cost us a lot. Um, it was on You know, I sent a court. It was being telecast around the world, and I missed it. So I think you said in the book
0: that that cost upwards of thirty thousand dollars. I mean, that's like a a huge amount of money for it's a very expensive pork sandwich for a matter of seconds. Yeah, exactly.
1: One of my friends said I should have called the chapter "The Million Dollar Sandwich,"
0: but yeah, (laughs) I missed that opportunity. But yeah,
1: it's um, yeah, it's crazy, and that gives you a sense of how much money is out there and how much can be lost so quickly, Um, just in a, a split second.
0: How much of a cut of that were you were you getting on any given time? Not that kind of money for a, a day. No, or definitely not. Definitely not. I mean, see this is the thing cuz I was
1: working with a syndicate, we were kind of given a a set pay and contract and if you, you know, a lot of the outfits that get around, a, a lot of the people I knew who were Italian or Russian or Estonian, they were just a couple of mates working together and they would take all the profit, but then the downside is they would also have to ride those losses. Um, so I had a pretty kind of comfortable Happy medium there, where I was getting paid quite well to travel the world, and I wasn't getting a percentage of the big wins, which you know there's always a bit of a dampener. But I couldn't complain because I had such a good lifestyle that, um, yeah, there was no point complaining. Really, I don't regret it for a second.
0: So on the lifestyle, you're getting to go to all these cool places the tennis tour goes. You get a company credit card. I think you said yeah. you get like, you know, it's it just it's it's a lot of a lot of fun. It's sort of a dream. Job in a lot way, I would think, especially for someone your age. And you know, Aussies love traveling, as, as you said, for just being yeah, in London and Canada, and just going around the yeah. world. I mean, that must have been that must have been awesome. Yeah, I was
1: like mid mid twenties, um, and had travelled a lot before then, and just loved it. I knew I wanted to keep doing it. And I was actually at the stage when that that job came through. I was looking at you know going to work on super yachts or finding another kind of vocation that could keep me travelling and doing it smarter so that I was actually getting paid while I travelled and this just kind of happened to fall in my lap at the right time and, yeah, I was super fortunate to be able to do it and the lifestyle was just the best that I could ever remember. I mean, you're waking up in a hotel every day, you've got the buffet breakfast and then, you know, you see players around occasionally and you can feel the buzz of the tournament there. It's pretty exciting to be in, you know, you get into town and check out a new place. And then you, you go to the tournament and obviously, you know, people pay a lot of money just to go to the tournament for the day. Yeah. And it's an exciting thing in the calendar year for a lot of people when the tournament comes to town. So we get to do that on the daily and it's, it's a nice environment to be in, super fun. You get to watch sport. I love sport. And, um, you know, get to sit on court and get paid to watch live sport. I mean, that's that's a lot of people's dream come true. So throwing the travel aspect with that and it was it was just a dream job for sure.
0: What was – what were some of your favorite places to go that you went to on the uh on the tour just from either from like a work perspective like what was the nicest you know tournaments to be at or most maybe yeah. conducive to be at if that's a different category or also in what just cities you like to go into that you hadn't been to before or that you like spending time and again
1: for sure in terms of tournaments you know they do they're all really well designed and catered um i love the aussie open you know that's Obviously, home turf, it's super fun. It's got an amazing atmosphere. Going down to Melbourne at that time of year is just amazing because you've got – we'd go sometimes from the tennis to the cricket, which is awesome, go watch yeah. cricket at night. But then, you know, Miami's great. Indian Wells was great. Um, Madrid was amazing. There's just so many. It's, it's hard to really – there weren't many I didn't like. And some of the smaller tournaments over in Europe were amazing. Um, Halle is one of Federer's
0: favourites. Yeah, oh, that's a, a favourite of mine too. I like Halle yeah, a lot. It's, it's just such a nice
1: little town and it's just got a very kind of warm, fuzzy vibe to it and it's grass, which is awesome. Um, it's a bit of a treat to get to watch grass tournaments these days. So, yeah, there's, there's so many. Um, and there's a couple that I did, a couple I did by myself, which was interesting, and there's a couple I did with, you know, 10 or 12 people, which was super exciting. I mean, the US Open was always a huge one. So much fun being in New York and just having a, a big group of people to go out to the bars with at night and just explore. Um, yeah, I don't think there was really many locations that I didn't enjoy. There's a few uh, – Morocco was kind of tricky. There wasn't a whole lot going on in Casablanca when we did that one. Oh, no, it was Fez. Actually, I think it was Fez that I did there. Um, and then India wasn't as enjoyable. Um, Chennai, because mainly because of the, <laughs> the experience that I had there. Um but I'd been in Sri Lanka the week before, you know, and I couldn't
0: complain. That was, what, that was awesome. What, what so. was your, what was your Chennai experience? Chennai was
1: probably the heaviest experience I had during the job. Um, just in terms of being threatened with, with, uh, well, not even legal repercussions, just more like illegal repercussions. <laughs> like the, the, uh, tennis integrity unit officer who, who had me kind of snatched off the court that day was really playing this good cop, bad cop game. And, um, so I was sitting on court with my phone in my hand, and he came up and just grabbed me and grabbed the phone out of my hand and just grabbed. Me. It was really physical, um, and he had guards with him or Indian police. They had their guns and their their lathes, like their big sticks, and um, they pretty much just grabbed me and dragged me. He literally dragged me off court. Everyone's looking around like, "What's going on? What's he done?" And you know, I looked like a criminal, which you know he was going to argue I was. So being in India, uh, it's a bit sketchy. So you know, I knew it was it was. Pretty uh brazen going there, and then to get snatched off like that. We got the heart racing, and then they took me down to a a concrete room downstairs, and it was like something out of a movie. It was it was like he sat me down, and they had the cop standing behind me quite intimidatingly, and he sat down in front of me at the desk and like folded his arms. He's like, "Right, you're in a lot of trouble, mate." (laughs) And um. Yeah, it just kind of went from between him being really nice and friendly and saying, like, we can do this for you, and then him switching uh, as if he had bipolar and just threatening me and saying, look, we're going to drag you out to a back alley and just beat the crap out of you if you don't tell me exactly what I want to hear now. I want to know who you work for. I want to know their names and details and what you're doing is illegal. And, you know, if we want, we can throw you in prison, my friend. Like, we can throw away the key. No one's going to know where you are you're in India this is a whole different game you've you've really stuffed up by coming here and um it went on for a long time like it was uh it was a pretty thorough interrogation and it's yeah he had me sweating it out for for quite a while
0: so so let's i guess pause there to like just be like to get into a bit of the legality conversation about court siding what what was what was TIU's argument what were you what do they think you were doing wrong why was anyone against yeah, you sitting well, there in the sand? Pushing buttons after each point. The
1: the kind of answer we always got was it's it's you're kind of corrupting the integrity of the sport. Um, and then they'd always kind of allude to match fixing, which obviously I had I would never have published game set cash or come out publicly if I'd had any involvement in match fixing. I, I despise it. I think it's a horrible thing for sport. But unfortunately, the the tennis integrity unit saw courtsiding as a threat that was you know only a step or two removed from the possibility of match fixing which i can see where they're coming from but unfortunately it's just a it's a it's been misunderstood quite a lot because we always said if there was more communication with the uh the courtsiders then there, there could have been a more amicable situation where they actually had everyone's data and information and kept tabs on everybody mm. and i think um I think a Spanish guy actually showed me what he once sent to the tennis integrity unit. He was a a courtsider and he put a proposal forward to them to, to do exactly that and said, look, we'll, we'll, um, adhere to a system. If you want people to register and apply for permits to be on court and, and do this, then you can have all of our information and make sure that nothing shady is going on in the background. But, um, obviously they weren't going to converse with him about that. So that was, was frustrating for him. But, um, you know, they've got a pretty hard line stance on it. They don't want anyone gambling at the matches, which is is interesting when you see how many um, gambling sponsors are kind of plastered around the, the tennis venues. Yeah. But, you know, they need to get their income from somewhere. It's just a bit ironic when you, you're you um, being told that you're not allowed to gamble in the yeah. tennis and <laughs> everything around you is telling you to gamble.
0: It just seems so. like, yeah, I mean, like it seems like, and I obviously dove pretty deep into this issue when I wrote the story, but... It seems like the Tenants Integrity Unit kind of, conf- or at least tournament organizers and, you know, Grand Slams and the and the Tours conflate the two They make them seem like they're the same thing or they're part of a slippery slope somehow that, that court siding is going to lead someone to change the outcome of a match when really they don't have anything to do with each other you know, in any proven case, exactly. I mean, ever, there's never been a case of a courtsider being involved in rigging the outcome of a match. And if you were rigging the outcome of a match, you wouldn't need to courtside it on it because you would know who was going to win and could just bet on that person fully. And there's actually, exactly. one, there's one example in the story about when courtsider guy who I met was at a match in Winston-Salem in 2017, I believe, where uh, Alexander Dolgopolov was accused of there's a lot of betting pre-match that made people think he was going to tank the Mm -hmm. match. And, uh, this courtsider guy was in Winston Salem and they like suspended almost all the bookmakers suspended betting on that match. And he was just sort of left. There with nothing to do because he couldn't, you know, the match was off the books and so that he couldn't touch it. And so the, the match fixing, at least the specter of it and Dogopolov denied that he didn't did anything there, but did lose the match. Eventually Dougal you know, that, that ruined his day. Essentially that, that, that possibility of match fixing. So yeah, there the would be a kind of cross purposes with each other, and it would be kind of either redundant or just not necessary. Just in, and if you're gonna fix a match, why show up to that match? Like why why be yeah. at the scene of the crime when you can fix, fix a match, you know, over text message from anywhere with anybody, even if even that. Exactly. Yeah, you you, can, you don't need to be need to be vulnerable to it. But yeah, but it's just something that it seemed like there was sort of a, the tour the sports governing bodies tried to create a bit of a moral panic over court siding that had to do with data rights deals that were going on uh, in yeah. sport and them selling them. And you talk about this in the book, actually, how in the beginning of the 2012 season, there was a, a big uh, package of data rights deals that were sold from the tennis organizers to Sport Radar and to IMG, who own the rights. Mm-hmm. And that you said you saw the sort of in the cat and mouse game of you guys getting hunted down by the by the people trying to uh, catch you doing this in the stands. That, like the intensity and the unpleasantry got ramped up uh, a lot. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Was like?
1: And you know, like a few a few years prior, I'd had friends who had the job before me openly trading matches comfortably. Um, years before that, even people had laptops out on on the court and they were fine. Um, but once that deal came through. And it seemed to kind of, like you said, they seemed to um, proliferate this idea between, I think especially between security guards. I think they would actually tell security guards that we were um, throwing matches because the way that we were treated when security guards would grab us, like I mentioned before, in India, it's like just dragged off the court. Um, and the disdain that they would kind of treat us with, it, it surely, yeah, if if they'd explained court sighting properly to these guys, I don't think there would be such an issue. But... um, you know, we just we just started getting snatched up for for anything. They would just they would actually have scouts on court looking for us. A few of the umpires' kids actually were doing that for a job, and and they would spot us on court and then go tell security, and security would come get us. So we'd have to look out for security, and then also for these scouts. So we'd kind of be playing cat and mouse with a couple of people in the venue.
0: And you get to know these 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 cats as as a mouse yeah. that you were. You get to sort of recognize them by face and. Learn how to evade and have like kind of rivalries with them. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's funny. They'd pop up in, in like Sweden and then you'd see them over in, you know, Thailand or something the next week. And it, it's funny because they'd, we'd never speak, but they'd be like, I know what you're doing. And you'd think to yourself, well, I know what you're doing. And yeah, it was this kind of unspoken little game that, that went on. Um, but then different security guards at each venue, obviously, and who, who knew next to nothing about what the situation really was. So yeah, like I, I saw. You know, at Wimbledon, a friend of mine was trading a match, and two two old men got taken off court who were on their phones during this around this time when things got really um, ramped up, and they were completely oblivious to what was going on, and really surprised. And um, security had to apologise to them and and let them go back in. And one, funny enough, yeah. one of my friends who was trading the match was actually sat next to them, kind of amused by that. But they really went overboard with. Um, you know, trying to identify traders, courtsiders on court and, and drag them off. And yeah, it seems like all that money coming in was a, a huge influence on how courtsiding was perceived and then treated from then onwards. Yeah. Um, and to the point where it's been stamped out. I mean, it's it's near impossible to do these days. I've been told by by a few people that, um, you know, it's it's a lost cause. And um, I get I get messages from people occasionally who say they've been trying and haven't had any much luck or you know they might get on for a tiny bit or be doing outlandish things like standing on top of buildings next to a court with binoculars <laughs> trying to trade the match so yeah they've, i mean they have succeeded in what they wanted to do but um yeah i don't know i've i do not know if it's exactly um ethical what's been done there because it's um they've just forced that possibility out which is created a monopoly for them for the market which is interesting
0: yeah you you had an inter- when we spoke and I did an interview with you for the story and Brisbane a couple years ago, you were sort of comparing uh, the courtsiding people to, you know, entrepreneurs in various sort of like disrupting, you know, entrepreneurs like was Airbnb or like Uber that can sort of find some, some opening in the market and make space for it and like sort of make their own way. The courtsiding is sort of similarly innovative in that way that sort of you know people found this opportunity to beat the system or to you know find a pound of market inefficiency mm-hmm. i guess if that's what some economists might call it and and to exploit that i guess and you did kind of feel that way i mean like did you feel while you were doing it like you were doing anything illegal or at all wrong or did you think that you were misunderstood no, or, no. or what, what how did you how did you feel about it especially as you know you're getting pulled out of more and more venues so had how, just how did, how did your own relationship with with the path you chosen evolve
1: yeah i mean i was i was always happy to do it i kind of when i first had the opportunity i thought about it a little bit and because you know as you do with with a different job like that it's it's a gray area for some people um they wouldn't want to do it other people would jump at the opportunity and i thought about it for a while and i thought well i'm not i'm not doing anything that i think is ethically wrong here um so i'm happy to do it and it's enabled me to have a fantastic lifestyle and and enjoy something and it's not it's not hurting anyone we're we're definitely finding a little niche in the market and exploiting that to um to a degree but i mean these people are gambling who are on the market so i mean it's there's there's going to be people finding an advantage in any sort of market like that um so you know we were we were definitely reaping the benefits of it and then when we started getting dragged off um constantly it it got incredibly frustrating and, and annoying and I guess the main frustration was that, that feeling of being misunderstood by people who didn't really get what court sighting was um, and these these security guards who were just kind of, you know, looking at us like we're scum and um, sitting there saying, like, do you, do you guys actually know what's happening here? Have you been briefed on what, what's, what court sighting is or what, what you're dragging us off for? And, yeah, they, they usually didn't want to talk to us, which was, you know, annoying. But um, it got pretty embarrassing too, just just being constantly uh, – dragged off court and having the, you know, the security guards and the police standing around and groups of people at the tennis looking at you sideways, kind of wondering what's this guy done? And he looks a bit shady now. And yeah, it, it, was, um, it was a weird time. Like I, I shaved my head at one stage to try and squeeze into a venue without <laughs> getting caught and that didn't last long. And a few people were wearing disguises and things. So we're resorting to pretty crazy little um, options to try and get through it. But uh, for the most part, it just got... It got frustrating because we saw how much effort went into each tournament. You know, we'd fly across the world to get there. We'd check into a hotel. We'd have our tickets ready to go. And then if you got kicked out on the Monday and issued a trespass warning, then, you know, you, you've got tickets for the week that are just sitting there. Um, a lot of time and effort going into that for for nothing. So it was, it was frustrating, especially when you felt like you weren't doing anything illegal. And you knew it. Well, we knew it wasn't illegal. And it still isn't to this day. And it's just... Um, it kind of got to towards you know, politics. We want the rights, so we're not
0: letting you in anymore. So yeah, these, yeah. These, are, these are big rights deals. They had. I mean, like these, I think even just the futures level or ITF level, uh, Sport Radar was paying you know somewhere around twelve million dollars a year for those deals. Yeah. So so that's and it's even more I'm sure for IMG at the higher levels. And it was one of the, yeah. Anyway, I, on the disguises actually, it was funny because I didn't put it together until years later what had happened, but I remember. I was in Charleston, I think, in like twenty, I don't know, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen. Around then, seeing someone who was being like apprehended by tournament security, and there was a wig lying on the ground, and I was so confused, <laughs> like what this person was doing, or like I thought I thought they were a stalker was my first guess. That's the kind of thing you associate with that I associated with yep. like, with, with women's <laughs> tennis particularly. But I, I'm pretty sure, looking back on it, that was a courtsider who was trying to hide in the stands with some sort of wig, and just seeing this man getting like pinned to the ground with a wig next to him, I was I was baffled. But yeah, but it's, so it's, it's, it's this kind of weird layer of of tennis that you wouldn't know was there unless you're now. Now that I'm now that I've spoken, to people I, I I know a couple of courtsiders from doing the story, and I know a couple of the the spotters, the people who the cats and the cat and mouse, Uh yep. Dan, Danny Columbo, sort of the king spotter, who's uh, mentioned, who's yep. sort of an arch nemesis of a lot of these guys who are sticking with it. I, I know him a bit, and uh, yeah, it's just something you wouldn't know was happening unless you were you were there did, did you ever try to explain it to people when you were like in you know in a uh, in the stands and people i don't know people ever who were just fans innocuously next to you ever noticed something was up did you tell people about it Did um, you brag about what you were doing or did you just
1: not engage i, kind of, way? I don't think i don't think i did because i was too kind yeah. of focused on first of all you gotta you don't really have time to have a conversation like that and um yeah. You don't really want to let the cat out of the bag, with, if in case they go and tell somebody, because you're not sure how someone's going to react to that. Um, I think I did once or twice. Yeah, I think I did towards the end of of the time, and maybe in Australia where I felt a bit more comfortable, and that that always got, got interesting kind of responses. But for the most part, you kind of, yeah, you kind of try and keep to yourself a little bit for that exact reason. You didn't want to get too deep into a conversation with someone unless they started asking. And you'd have times when people would say, oh, you, you got your phone there. What's the score on, on this match and this court? And yeah. you'd kind of be like, oh, I, kind of, I can't really get out of this app at the moment. And yeah. trying to explain that was tricky. So, yeah, I mean, for the most part, reactions are fantastic when you tell people what you're doing. Because we'd always tell people outside the tennis, you know, if we were at a bar talking to people and they'd say, what are, what are you guys all doing here? Like you're a bunch of Australians or Englishmen or, you know, a mix of you kind of all here what are you what are you all here for and and we tell them and they'd just be like wow that's that's hilarious that's amazing and you always get positive kind of reactions i didn't i've i don't think i've ever met anyone who said oh that's not that's not cool you shouldn't be doing that so yeah for the most part it's always been good
0: what were the courtsiders like just as people i mean what kind of personalities did you find were attracted to this and it seems like from what i've gathered it's a bunch of like guys like in their 20s we're sort of, you know, enjoying like the sort of partying side of it too, and having like a good time with. Uh, yeah, with, um, is, that, is that is that basically right, or what kind of what kind of people were yeah. it, people were were they competitive? Were they friendly? Were they reckless? Were they you know paranoid? I mean, what kind of people got drawn to this?
1: Yeah, there's was a whole mix. I mean, good point about guys. Like there weren't. I think there was one girl who was trading for a while there as court siding. Yeah, and one girl used to do it with a boyfriend, but it was apart from that, it was it was guys who were doing it um, and yeah in that range like 20s to maybe 40s but yeah mainly 20s guys who are just yeah enjoying sport and then figured out about this this market had heard on you know the forums or something that had existed or heard from friends and got into it and yeah I mean some of them were super competitive and, and some would keep to themselves completely because they didn't want to discuss anything they didn't want to know um, what other people were up to they didn't want to give away any of their secrets and others would be really friendly and and meet up with you later, you know, to go out somewhere or to kind of go sightseeing or hang out, because you kind of have this um, strange little group of people that are traveling around the world who bump into each other here and there. So some of them, we would form pretty good friendships with, and we'd we'd hang out a lot. The guys were always, you know, pretty happy, pretty go lucky um, people with with an interesting lifestyle. You know, travel a lot and have been for for years. A lot of them had been doing it for. You know, five years sometimes some of the guys have been on the circuit for, which is a long time to travel around like that. And most of them had a pretty interesting story. I mean, obviously got a a bit of a knack for picking up an industry that's, you know, not very well known or hidden, or like we mentioned earlier, entrepreneurial types who are, you know, some of the characters were really interesting. One of the Italian guys, he could speak like five languages and do these amazing card tricks and knew all these different things about different countries. And he was the first person who showed me how you could – hail a, a car down in moscow or you know anywhere in russia basically and just stick your arm out and someone's going to pull over and pick you up without them being a taxi he's <laughs> like this is how it works here and he just kind of had traveled so much for so many years he he knew a lot of interesting things about the world so he kind of got to meet some really cool characters in that sense and they they all had an interesting backstory and had some great kind of tales to tell so yeah definitely some of my favorite times from from that Kind of phase of my life was just sitting around at the pub afterwards, like hearing these guys talk about things they'd been up to in all different corners of
0: the world. It was cool. Yeah. What What made you final? And obviously, we talked a bit about you know the, the tides turning. And I know in the book you mentioned you got banned from Wimbledon, which I know was sort of bruising for you personally, just as a person who's a sports fan likes Wimbledon. But I'm I'm curious, <laughs> just, but what what finally made you want to to throw in the towel? What made you want to stop? And as you mentioned, there are fewer. I think not. There's not no courts that but there's fewer people doing it. But what made you sort of see mm. the writing on the wall? What, what made the fun uh, run out for you? Well, it was even worse
1: the second time I got banned for life from Wimbledon. That was <laughs> <laughs> that was rough. So I went back the next year, and yeah, they they banned me for life again, which was a shame. But uh, they said I can go back. You know, I just got to check in and tell them I'm not doing anything shady, and it should be okay. That's nice. Um But you know, it just it kind of ran its course. It it yeah, the fun was disappearing because we were just not able to do our job and it was really um, deflating to, you know, like I said earlier, getting kicked out on a Monday when you're doing a week-long tournament and just sitting around thinking, well, how can I do this and not being able to really find a way was really frustrating. So I think it just, it got to the point where I'd had a lot of fun doing it and, you know, the grass is always greener. I was ready for something different and looking forward to, to actually heading back to Australia after being on the road for, I think it was the best part of five years that I'd travelled for mm. by that stage. So I was looking forward to just having a settled life because having to pack up your your bag every week, um, you know, every Sunday and then fly to another country, it's pretty draining and it, you know, takes away all those elements of stability that you used to. So, you know, at the moment I've got a um, pretty nice routine in, in a part of the world that I love. I live on the Gold Coast and get to go surf, you know, my favorite beaches daily and, you know, have friends and family close by, which is nice. Um, so those those things you kind of miss when you're on the road a lot. And yeah. it's, um, you know, definitely not a time that I'll ever regret. The more I kind of look back on it, the more I um, I feel like that was really probably going to be the best time of my life and I, I will never regret it. But it got to a point where I thought, yeah, I kind of – I've had enough. I've had my fill. I'm ready to kind of move on and, uh, yeah, say
0: goodbye to court sighting. Is, is there anything you ever miss about it in your in your current life? You ever look back and I don't know if it's, if it's being at a tournament, if it's sort of the adrenaline of the cat and mouse sense of it, or just getting to watch constant tennis. Any, anything you? Um, I
1: don't watch that much. I don't watch much tennis these days. I will watch the Aussie and probably Wimbledon.
0: Right, that's um, and that's you about it. it more. You, you've gotten enough tennis for. Yeah,
1: I I did not watch a lot of tennis after I finished. I just kind of went. That's enough. I've watched. I forget how many hundred matches. I kind of I figured it out at one stage. So there was a lot, but um, yeah. I miss I miss you know, feeling like you're doing something really interesting and intriguing. Um, that was always a, a bit of a buzz. Like you said, being on court and the cat and mouse stuff. That was fun, but um. Yeah, being, being in a hotel is really nice. I mean, having the option of room service or going down for breakfast at the buffet, you know, it's lovely. Um, I was meant to be actually doing a, a big trip over to New Zealand just last week that got cancelled because of all this um, coronavirus stuff, and I was right. looking forward to that. And yeah, kind of the, the perks of, of nice travel where you've got a nice hotel and can do that. That's a, that's a great lifestyle for sure. But, um, I definitely don't miss having to get on a plane every Sunday and check in at an airport and go through that rigmarole. So, yeah, there's there's not a whole lot that I miss at the moment. I'm pretty content.
0: I'm glad to hear that. And thank you for uh, for sharing your story as as well as you do in, in your book, which I would recommend to everybody out there. Is at all interested in this or just interested in just seeing, you know, a different layer, of, a different dimension of tennis than you, a lot of people. Even who are on tour, I, I have a, uh, uh, I think I could say, I he's talked about it before, but Jimmy, who's a past guest on the show and is a photographer on tour, read uh or read the article I think I did about which was pretty extensive on court sighting, and was just sort of fascinated mm. by knowing there was this whole ecosystem out there on tour, which he's on tour constantly. Yeah. That he didn't he wasn't really aware of the sort of this sub layer of things going on at tournaments. And uh yeah. So thank you for shining a light on that. And it's a book I would definitely recommend. And it's available on ebook, I believe, everywhere and print in yep. certain places. You can find it as well. So Brad, thank you very much for uh for being on here and taking time out of your busy surfing schedule (laughs) absolutely mate it's been a
1: pleasure it's nice always nice to to relive the good times and um yeah
0: thanks for having me on it's good to chat so thank you very much for listening to no challenges remaining and supporting and following us as always we are on twitter at ncr underscore tennis we're also on facebook facebook.com slash ncr podcast and you can send us questions comments anything to no challenges remaining at gmail Dot com We are next week gonna do a two episode uh, installment of our book club. Both episodes about Venus Envy. The first one is gonna be Courtney and I discussing the book at some great length, and in the second one we are joined by the author of Venus Envy, John Wertheim, for a fun discussion of the book. There, so hope you all enjoy that, and thank you for those of you who have or will uh, support us on Patreon. Our sort of crowdfunding effort here for the podcast as we appreciate your support monetarily as tennis grinds to a halt. want to give a shout out to those people who have backed us since we last did a show, listening backers, and a lot of them. So we're very thankful for this. Those names include Helene DeWitt, Jillian Dobson, Bob Stocking, Zachary Hertz, Rob Gilberry, Michael, Chris Hutchinson, Catherine Warren, Greg Tunning, Louisa Thomas, Andrew Lindley, Daniel Abajero. Leonard Lee, Joycats, we may have missed earlier, so Joycats, here you are, and Mary Carrillo. Thank you very much to all of them, and to our Grand Slam champ level backers as well, who include Betty, Liz Kennel, Jonathan Weinbaum, Chuang Nguyen, and Mary Carrillo. So thank you to all of those listeners, and to our GOAT backer, JOD, as well. I will be back next week with NCR Book Club on Venus Energy by John Wertheim. If you haven't checked it out yet, uh, we would love for you to read it before uh, the episode comes out and so you can follow along. And it's a great quarantine bit of fun there. Thank you again to this week's guest, Brad Hutchins, author of Games at Cash, which will include a link to where you can get that book. It's an ebook or a regular book on Amazon in the episode description, as well as a link to the Long Reads article I did for Racket about that world of court sighting which may take some explaining even after you hear this episode so those resources will be below thank you guys for listening and we will talk to you soon bye guys finished speaking he turned back toward the
1: window crushed out a cigarette it off to sleep and somewhere in the darkness the gambler he broke even in his final words I found an ace that I could keep. You got no when to hold up. No when to fold up.